But let's open our Bibles uh, tonight to 1 Samuel chapter 15. Uh, We're going to take communion tonight, so we're just going to get right into this. Last week we looked at chapter 14 where really Jonathan was the star of the show. We saw that he really really initiated this battle against the Philistines. And in the process of doing that, Saul makes this very rash and ridiculous oath uh, to his army. You know, if you have a man... If you have a man out in the field and they're an army, the last thing you want to do is deprive them of food because they need that. It's a very physical thing. Even when you are nourished, to be out in the battlefield requires a lot of energy. And Saul, uh, feigning to be spiritual, which is really one of his problems, he, just, he was always trying to make it happen instead of just relaxing. And, but he makes this oath that you know, as they were uh, beating the Philistines and doing, uh, doing pretty well, because of Jonathan again, his faith, not Saul's faith, that we find that his, he makes the oath that no one should eat anything until they finally vanquish the Philistines. And that really created a problem. And, uh, and it, so much so that it caused his army to nearly faint and also put his son, Jonathan, the, the, the one who had the real faith in the family, put his life in jeopardy as well. And a very foolish thing Saul did, and we're going to see tonight that he does another foolish thing that's really going to end his kingdom, and God is going to basically wash his hands of King Saul, and he's going to place his anointing on another, on David. But we're going to see that Saul is still going to reign for a number of years after this, but Saul is going to be so jealous of David that David will be on the run for years, and Saul will be hunting him. And so let's get right into uh, chapter 15. Let's just read the first nine verses, and then we'll go back and get into it. So it says, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me. And and notice, I I love how direct Samuel is. And Samuel had this interesting relationship with Saul. I really think he loved them, especially at the beginning, even though um, he had uh, some problems in the sense that he knew that Saul was... Uh, that it was wrong for the country, for Israel, to have a king. But I think he had great hopes for Saul, hoping that he would do well. But Samuel was not afraid to speak truth to Saul. You know, here's this king, the Israel's first king, and Samuel, certainly being an elder statesman at this point, was not afraid to speak truth to this young man who needed, who needed a lot of guidance. He needed a lot of help in his ministry, and Samuel had such a sterling character and such a a wonderful way about him. He was a real worshiper. He understood God's ways. He understood the way, and Saul did not. And so it was good for Saul to have Samuel around. So finally, in verse 15, it says, Samuel also said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. Go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. 
There we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. I'll pause there because they can edit this out. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them, and Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley, And then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." And so here we see this uh, situation where God gives to, to Saul a very clear command, a very clear mission to go and destroy the Amalekites. And we're going to look at the reason why they were to be destroyed. And that's something that we don't always like to talk about, we don't like to think about. And in our culture today, if God was to speak like this and it was to go out in the, into the papers, he would be canceled. He would be impeached. He would be run out of town for this kind of talk. He would, I know for sure. They'd crucify him again if he were here on the earth and speaking these words. But one thing we have to realize is that God is the perfect judge. He's the perfect judge. Only he is. Every other judge who's sitting in a courtroom, sitting behind a desk in a courtroom, is subject to bribes and corruption and many there are that do receive bribes. Many there are that are corrupted, but, there, but God is not corrupted. He's not, a, he's not able to be corrupted because he is perfection. And so when God says, I want you to do something, you'd better believe there's a very, very good reason. And by the way, because God is a God of grace, he gives much time to repent. He gives space to repent. And I love that about the Lord because otherwise I wouldn't be here because I deserve death. And maybe you feel the same way. Before you came to Christ, all the things that you were involved in, all the things that you did, I know I deserved a flaming hot bolt from heaven just to consume me and there'd just be a little black spot where I used to be. That's what I deserved. But I'm so glad that in his loving kindness, he loved me instead and he forgave me. So notice back in verse 1, it says, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. And here's the command. Now, therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Listen to the words of the Lord. Listen, Saul, I want you to do something. And this is, we're going to see tonight that this is going to be Saul's last chance before the Lord would take the kingdom from him and give it to someone better than him. And I can say that with all of heaven on my side because that's what the scripture says. Someone better than him. That's what Saul, that's what God wanted Samuel to say to Saul. Someone better than him. We saw that uh, Saul's, um, excuse me, his first mistake in chapter 13 
when Samuel told him to wait for him at Gilgal for seven days, and he would come, and at that time they would, have a, they would offer a sacrifice, and they would renew the kingdom there. And, um, or I'm sorry, they wouldn't renew the kingdom there. I'm, I'm thinking of a, a different chapter there. But, but instead of waiting upon Samuel, Saul takes it upon himself because he's losing his men. They're getting really discouraged. The Philistines are amassing themselves. He's getting really anxious, which is very natural. It's very normal. But God set this test up for Saul, and he failed miserably because we know that at the 11th hour, he's like, okay, i got to take matters in my own hands. He himself, a Benjamite, he takes it upon himself to offer the sacrifice on the altar, which only the Levites were supposed to do. And finally, at the last moment, Samuel shows up, and he's like, what are you doing? And Saul gives this great excuse, a couple of excuses, actually. And the Lord rebukes him right there for his disobedience. And then we saw in chapter 14, Saul making rash oaths when his son, who was full of faith, was actually enacting those things that God had told before that he would do through them. And now we're going to see in chapter 15 his last chance at obedience. See, God is more than just the God of the second chance. He's more than the God of the third chance. Often, I know in my life, he's been the God of the hundred chances. And even beyond that, I have frustrated God over my lifetime so much. I can tell you that for sure, and I'm not even ashamed to admit it. I have tested him. I've taken him. And, and, and to me, it's just a testament to his goodness and grace that, I, again, I wasn't snuffed out. Because all my life, rebelling against him, and I'm so thankful that he didn't, that he still loves me, and that he still loves you too, regardless of how many times you've made the mistake, regardless of how many times you said, Lord, this is it, this is the last time I'm going to do this. And then you do it again, and then you repent, or that you ask him to forgive you, and he forgives you, and for a while you're doing good, and then you, then you fall into the same sin again, and, and God is always there with an arm open, for you. Never forget that. Confess and come. Run back to him. Don't listen to the devil's lies. He'll tell you everything. You're not worth anything. God's done with you. Do those voices sound familiar? Your own flesh will do it to you. Sometimes the devil doesn't have to do anything. He can, he can go to Tahiti and sit on the shores of the, of the ocean. He doesn't have to do anything most of the time. We condemn ourselves pretty good, but sometimes he comes in, throws his fiery darts, but it's important for a leader to be obedient and to be holy, to be set apart. And really, that's what Saul wasn't, but that's what God wanted him to be. Wanted him to be set apart. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives us the qualifications for an overseer or a, um, an elder, for instance, an overseer, a pastor. He said, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good thing. A bishop then must be blameless. The husband of one wife, temperate, he should be sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. And this list here is pretty formidable, and any person who's alive would say, you know, I've failed at some of those things, perhaps many of those things. And see, this, these, these were still, even though these are New Testament things, these are still the qualities that God was looking for in a leader. And we look at Saul's life and we see that he wasn't blameless. I've just underlined a few of these 
in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Saul wasn't blameless. He wasn't temperate. He wasn't patient. In fact, he was impatient. Sober-minded was something he was not. He wasn't sober-minded. Sometimes he went off the hinge. And especially when the Lord took the spirit away from him and sent an evil spirit to trouble Saul. That kind of, that's kind of interesting, isn't it, for our theology? To think that God would allow an evil spirit to, to, uh, to come against Saul. And of good behavior. Saul wasn't a man of good behavior. And it says that a qualification of, a, of an overseer is one who is not covetous. But we'll see that he was. And we'll see tonight that he was. Many want to be in leadership, and that leadership could be in a company, a Fortune 500 company. It could be in the church. It could be in whatever vocation you're in. Everybody wants to be a leader. But you know what's interesting? Is I've come to understand, and I'm understanding more, is that unless God calls you to that position, you're in very dangerous ground. Unless he has anointed you or ordained you for that, that role, you're in, you're in serious trouble. So many people want to lead, but they don't know how to lead, or God hasn't given them that calling. Some people look the part, but they don't have the heart. The heart is what's most important. We're going to see that tonight. God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. But notice what it says here in verse 1. The, the command was, now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. This word heed ought to be familiar to you. It's the, it's the Hebrew word shema. Shema. And that word is an important word in the Hebrew or dictionary, and it literally means to hear intelligently with the idea of doing something about what you've heard. So it's not only hearing, but then responding in obedience, right? That's what the word heed means. It's not just listening, but it's doing it afterwards. And this word shema we know is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. You, you recall the verse. Where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. That word here is the same exact word. Here with the intent of doing something. And see, that's where I think most of us fall short is what we, we tend to hear. I'm one of those people for many years, all I did was soak in like a sponge. I heard, I heard, I heard. I listened, I sat under thousands of hours of Bible studies from Pastor Jeff and others. But then if I don't do something about it, if I don't put feet on that, I'm just like the Dead Sea. I'm receiving, I'm receiving, but I'm not giving out. And so it's very important that we receive, but that we give. Otherwise, the water gets stagnant, and then it gets putrid, and then it becomes something it's not supposed to be. And God wants you to be fresh. He wants to, he wants to give you the good things from above, and he wants it to go through you and to minister it to others. It's sort of like you're just a vessel. You're just a conduit of everything that he has, his love, his grace, everything. And that's the way we need to be. And would to God that Saul would have listened and obeyed the Lord, but we know that he didn't. And let me tell you, God has a way of dealing with us if we are stubborn like a mule. If we are just unwilling, unwilling to bend, unwilling to learn, God has a way of making our life uncomfortable. And yes, he does. And he can. And he has the right to do that. Especially if you're a, a, a believer in Jesus Christ. I claim to know him. I claim to believe in him. I claim to be, I claim that he is my Lord, right? But in order for him to be my Lord, that means that I've got to obey him. And therein lies the rub, because I don't want to obey anybody. I want to do my own way. 
I want to be like Sinatra. I did it my way, not God's way. And hopefully Mr. Sinatra changed his tune before his end came. That's my hope. I know it was God's hope. But my advice to you is to listen to the Lord and obey him at any cost. At any cost. Especially when it's difficult. Especially when it seems impossible. When it makes no sense. When everybody will laugh at you for you obeying what God has told you to do. Because believe me, sometimes God will cause you to do something that's not going to make sense to everyone around you. Think of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, I want you to lay on your side for so many days, and I want you to build this little model out in front, and I want you to do it where everybody can see it. And then I want, for so many hundreds of days, I want you to do that. Then I want to flip on your other side, and I want you to do it. And can you imagine the humiliation that would be for the prophet? God, I'm your spokesman. I'm the one you're supposed to be speaking through. Can't we get one of the other grunts to do that? One of the other, you know, one of the contract employees? You know, Lord? But he goes, no, I want you to do it. In John chapter 14, Jesus, remember, speaking to his disciples, what did he say? If you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you to whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing is like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation, against which the stream beat vehemently vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. And see, there is the difference between obedience and non-obedience. When we go to Israel, we have this wonderful tour. We go underneath. It's called the Rabbi's Tunnel. And you go right under the western wall, and you walk, and you actually see the foundation stones of Solomon's temple that had been laid a long time ago. And you can actually see, there's, a, there's actually this one spot where you can see the, the limestone foundation and the, 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 the um, ashlars that are placed right on there. And you can see where they placed the very first stones there. It's amazing. It's like you're, you're seeing like a slice and you're, you're walking through it and you see it. But it's built upon a rock. That thing's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's been there for a long time. And, and so, but that's what we need to be like. Our foundation strong. Saul didn't have that strong foundation. He wasn't a worshiper. And notice what it says in verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts. And here is, here is God's heart, and we'll find out why that is in just a moment. He says, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out of Egypt. And see, the Lord has an excellent memory. He knows everything. He knows everything that happened in the past. He knows your past. In fact, recall, we just, we're in Revelation 20 just a, a week or two ago. And it says that at the great white throne judgment, those who are outside of Christ, who appear before that, not us, the church, but those who are, have rejected Christ, they stand before the Lord in this great white throne judgment, and books are opened. The deeds that they have done are opened, and then the book of life is opened. But God knows all the events 
of these people, the, the Amalekites. Verse 3, it says, now go, and here's the command of God, go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, oxen, sheep, camel, and donkey. And boy, that sounds like a really hard pill to swallow, isn't it? Kill everybody. Again, he'd be impeached for words like that. He'd be canceled. He'd be kicked off Twitter. He'd be kicked off Facebook. YouTube would stop posting his videos. God remembers what Amalek did to Israel, this infant nation coming out of Egypt, just fledglings coming out brand new, and they're traveling. They got a long way to go, and it's going to take them 40 years. It should have only taken them a couple weeks, but God had to prove them out there. But while they were coming into the promised land, in in route, they were harassed by the Amalekites. In Exodus chapter 17, uh, beginning in verse 8, you can just write that reference off to the side here. Let me read it to you. Because as they were coming in to, or getting close to the promised land, it says that Amalek came out and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so Joshua did as Moses said to him, and they fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand with the rod, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became weary. You can imagine doing that. Have you tried to hold your hands up like this for uh, about 10 minutes? You're going to feel every, every muscle in your arms. So thank God for her and Aaron because they stood by him and they held up his arms and they helped him in his time of need. So And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And notice it says in verse 14, The Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek. Amalek from generation to generation. God hated the fact that Amalek came out when his people needed the help the most, and yet they got ambushed from behind. It says in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, remember what Amalek did to you, by the way, because here Moses is rehearsing for them what had happened. When you came forth out of Egypt, how he met you, by the way, and smote the hindmost of thee, even all that were feeble behind thee, that when you were faint and weary, and he feared not God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord thy God has given you rest from all your enemies round about in the land which the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess it, that thou shalt block out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Thou shalt not forget it. Did you hear that? You shall not forget it. Because of what they did, God now remembers it. And he says, I, Saul, and this is, this is the, the very clear command, a very clear thing for Saul to do. Saul, I want you to do this. It's a, it's a very direct commission. There's, it's very clear. You got the army to do it. This is what I want you to do. And I want you to do it. And this was straws, Saul's final straw. That's what I call tonight's message. Saul's final straw. Try saying that three times really quick. So, 
Notice, utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them. Kill everybody, everybody. And we see God's judgment is very similar when God called them to, when they went into the promised land. Those seven nations that were there in Canaan that God was going to displace with the Israelites, those seven nations, the, 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 the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, and, and he lists the, the other four. God was going to bring judgment upon them. Why? Just because he wanted to give his place, his people somewhere to go? No, they had been sinning for hundreds of years, and God finally said, enough is enough. I want you to judge them. Wipe them out. Every single thing. Do not leave anything breathing behind. And that's hard, isn't it? But that is God. Aren't you glad you're on his loving side? I love the fact that God loves. He loves so intently, but he also, his vengeance is very real. Very real. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, what did it say? But of the cities of these people, which the Lord your God gives you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord has commanded you. And why? That they teach you not to do after all their abominations which they have done unto their gods. So should you sin against the Lord your God. So they've been doing it. God says, enough's enough. I don't want them to be an influence on you anymore. Or I don't want them to be an influence on you, period. And Amalek is a type of the flesh. In the Bible, Amalek has always been a type of the flesh. It just keeps coming back, keeps coming back. And we'll see, even though Israel, in this chapter, they're going to defeat the Amalekites to some extent, they're still going to have an uprising of them later on in David's career. We're going to see them rising up again, and they're going to have to deal with them again. It's the same thing. It's, it's like our flesh. It rises up. It, it, it gets quelled down. For some reason, God's grace just brings the, into submission our flesh, and we're willing to obey, and we're willing to submit to him. And then time goes on, and then we're like, eh, let's do that again. Maybe I'll just get this close. I'll get right to the edge, but I won't go over the edge. And we flirt with sin, because that's the human nature. We flirt with it. We think we can do it. We think we can do it better than we did before, that we can do it without getting caught. We can, we can do it better and not get burned But the Bible says, put to death your members which are on the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. So what he said in Colossians 3. In James chapter 4, James says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a good wake-up call for the church. Because the world has infiltrated the church. Maybe not here so much. Hopefully not. If there is, we need to examine it, right? But there are many churches in our city, many churches in our country, that are no different than anything else. They don't even bring their Bibles. You don't need one. <laughs> right? Some churches, you can just go in and you, can, you, you walk in and you get a feel-good message. The band pumps you up. It's like a Christian pep rally. And then you go home feeling good about yourself. Can you imagine going to church and always feeling good about yourself? Then there's no change, is there? And then who are we really appeasing? Are we really... It's really then about us then, isn't it? It's not about God. 
Because if it's about him, we're going to listen to him. And, and sometimes he has, he's got a lot of things that really encourage us and, and loves us. And we know that. But there's also very much warning as well. And we need that. Even as Christians, we need to hear that. Romans says, there's therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8, to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk what? Not after the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that's what we need to walk. That's what we need to walk. And that's what Amalek was all about. It was about the flesh. And God is serious about sin. We're not that serious about it sometimes, but God is very serious about it. I would encourage you to take a serious stance about sin. Don't play footloose and fancy free with it. Don't think, well, I got this under control, because believe me, Solomon thought he had it all under control. Most people who have who fallen into sin and their lives and their marriages and their careers that have been destroyed have always started off with the idea that I've got this under control. It's only starting off light. I'm only, I'm only doing this cocaine every now and then. My wife doesn't know about it. I'm just doing a little bit here and there. Next thing you know, you need a little bit more. You need a little bit more. And eventually it takes you over and you're caught and you lose everything. What does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? That's really good news. He gives it to us. It's a gift. So in verse 4, back in our text, it says, So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. This town, Telaim, is, if you were looking at a map of Israel in the very southernmost part of Israel where you might have seen Beersheba, it's actually a couple miles south of that. So we're down there in the realm of the Amalekites, uh, on the uh, west side, and then on the east side, you would have the people of Edom. The people of Edom. And so Saul came to a city down there in the south, to a city of Amalek, and he lay in wait in the valley. And then in verse 6, it says, Saul came to the Kenites, and he said to them, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites. So the Amalekites and the Kenites, they dwelt together. And so, um, you know, Saul is telling the Kenites, Leave the city. All you Kenites, get out, because we're going to come against the city. And why, lest I destroy you with them? For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so their safety is really predicated upon what they did when the Israelites came out of Egypt, isn't it? God is showing them favor. He's blessing them. He's giving them an opportunity. He's removing them before he brings judgment. Does that sound like a common theme in the Bible? Doesn't that sound like the rapture of the church? God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Isn't that what he does in the rapture? He removes us before he brings his judgment upon the world. There's so many types like this in the scripture, and they're really good to see. But these Kenites, these are an interesting people. These, if you remember Jethro, this was Moses' father-in-law. Remember Moses married Jethro's daughter named Zipporah. Um, early on in his career when he came out of Egypt, and he was a Kenite. And the Kenites and the Midianites were pretty much in, involved in the same tribe. And so uh, Moses obviously had a great relationship with Jethro, and it's probably why the Kenites let them pass through when they finally did come through and Moses delivered them out of Egypt. The Kenites, you know, 
they, they knew everybody, Jethro, and, and he was married to Zipporah. They're like, you know, we'll give you safe passage. And they, they even actually went with them as far as to Jericho, where they hung out there for a while. The Kenites did, and so God was going to bless them and tell them to get out before he brought judgment. And see, God always remembers these things. He removes the righteous before he brings judgment. Again, just another proof text that God is faithful. He's faithful to remove the faithful before he brings judgment. I love that about the Lord. We see that with Lot. God was going to remove them, him and his family, before God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. He wanted to remove faithful Lot. Even though he was a a carnal believer, God was still going to deliver him. We see that. And notice back in our text says, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Notice, didn't God say, kill everything and everybody? Wasn't that the command? You have to read these things like a lawyer. <laughs> because when God, God says what he means, and he means what he says, he, he, he doesn't leave any room for interpretation, which I think is good. So he took Agag, king of the Amalekites, he took him alive. He killed, they killed many other people, and they utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Not all the people, and we'll see that here shortly. But there were two kings of the Amalekites whose name or title was Agag. Agag is not a name, it's a title, like Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a title. Herod is a title. Ahasuerus is a title. These aren't people's names. And so Agag was the title of this king. And some believe that this Agag was the progenitor or the ancestor of Haman. Remember Haman in Esther chapter 3? It says that he was, it says in chapter 3 verse 1 that Haman, it says, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. The Agagite. The question I have for you is why would they call him an Agagite instead of an Amalekite, if he indeed was from Amalek, which he wasn't. Haman wasn't an Amalekite. Agag was the name of a place. And I, I just learned this just this week, actually. I, I was always under, under the impression that it was, it's a nice story if you think about it. You know, having Haman, you know, for you know, hundreds of years in the future, having this deep-down hatred for the Jews, it, it makes for a great story, but I don't think it's accurate at all. It's an interesting, uh, an in- interesting story. Because think of it, the descendants of Saul are not called Saulites. The descendants of Saul are Benjamites. So Haman is from another people group from Persia. From Persia. In fact, a recent discovery, and just to corroborate this, there was a recent discovery uh, on some parchment or some stone, I forget the exact uh, substrate that it was written on, but Sargon, the father of Sennacherib, who was uh, the king of Assyria, said that Agag, he said that Agag was a name of a place adjacent to Media, which was near them. So Agag is a name of a place. So the Agagite makes sense. He's an Agagite. He comes from Agag. It's a, it's, a, it's a different place. But notice in verse 9, but Saul and the people. And look at the order in which it's there. Saul and the people. 
It didn't say the people and Saul. It says Saul and the people, they spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, lambs, all that stuff. And they noticed they were unwilling, underline that word, they were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, they destroyed that stuff. That's easy to do, isn't it? But all the good stuff, all the filet mignon, those Angus cows, I just can't, I can't, I can't do it. These beautiful Angus cows that have been grass-fed and they had full range. I can't, I just can't let them go. I got beef jerky to make. I got steaks to slice up. But notice the order of the name. But Saul and the people. Saul was in charge, was he not? And the people would have obeyed him if he held his ground, but his heart was covetous just like the people was. And he was not a worshiper of God, and he blamed his weakness on the people. We're going to see that throughout the scripture this, this evening. And this is what, what not a, a leader shouldn't do. He shouldn't do that. If he's a leader, he needs to lead instead of letting the people lead him. And that's what we found here. And we're going to see that as we go on. And notice they were unwilling to destroy them. Our human will can be a dangerous thing. You know, I need my will broken. Do you need your will broken? I need my will constantly broken that I'm not getting my way all the time. A wonderful animal <laughs> is an animal that's been broken and that submits to the yoke, and it's very happy to do so. And, it, and it's, it's fed well, it's, it's kept well, but it knows its job, it puts itself in the yoke, and it goes along without any complaints. And see, an animal, just like a, a wild horse, needs to be broken, so do we. We need our wills broken to where we'll willingly submit to God in his ways, not how we feel. Our feelings will lie to us. Our feelings will lead us off course, but we need to be broken just as much. And this was a great test for Saul because there were times, you recall in the book of Joshua, when they first came against Jericho, God told them to not spare anything, kill everything except for Rahab because she hid the spies, remember? The Hebrew spies, he says, save her and everybody in her house, but everyone else, every living thing, I want you to completely destroy. He did that again, didn't he? But you recall the battle right after that, the battle of Ai. It's recorded for us in Joshua 8. Then he says, in the next battle, the spoil this time you guys can keep for yourselves. There were times when God says, don't touch anything. And there was other times where he said, no, this, this time you can take anything you want. But the first fruits belong to me. That's why Jericho was the first city when they crossed into the promised land. And God says, that belongs to me. Everything in it, the gold, the silver, all that belongs to me. For my purposes, for the tabernacle and whatnot. Very simple, isn't it? Is it? Is it simple? It sounds simple, but in practice it can be hard because of our will, right? And Saul was a man who was self-willed. It says in verse 10, Now the, Lord, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set Saul up as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Now, when you see a phrase like this, where, where God says, I greatly regret something, that I've set something, that I've set Saul up as king, this, this doesn't mean that God didn't see this coming. 
Of course God saw this coming. God knows all things. He's omniscient. He knew this would happen. He, he knew it very well. So it's not that he lacks understanding and knowledge, but it still breaks the heart of God when it finally comes to fruition because Saul had the opportunity to obey and he did not. Do you understand that? That's the difference between somebody who is a robot and somebody who has free will. God knew that exactly what was going to happen here, but he let Saul work it out. He let Saul do it. Of his, he, God didn't intervene. In fact, God gave him everything he needed to succeed. He had the Spirit of God come upon him. Remember, he prophesied. He had all these good things. God treated him very well and gave him every opportunity. But we find a similar phrase in Genesis. Remember that in Genesis 6 where it says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth when because of everything was so corrupt on the earth, right before he judged it with the water, the flood judgment. He was sorry that he made man on the earth when he was grieved in his heart. He knew it was coming. He'd planned for it in advance. But when it finally comes to pass, it breaks God's heart because he knows that it could have been different had man obeyed. But see, nothing takes God by surprise. So when Samuel rose early in the morning, verse 12, to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself. Think about this. He was successful on the battlefield, so now he sets up a monument for himself. Look what I've done. It's probably a statue of Agag. Or, you know, they, they set up some, maybe they put a pile of rocks on it and put a crown at the top. You know, we don't really know what that monument was, but it was basically an ego trip. It's sort of like the Lombardi Trophy, <laughs> you know, or the Super Bowl ring or whatever it is. You know, you hold it up and you kiss it and you pass it around to your, all to your other class or, you know, mates and they can kiss it too and everybody gets COVID. But notice that Saul went to Carmel and indeed he set up a monument for himself and he was gone on around, passed by and gone down to Gilgal. Now, Having been to Israel a couple times, and perhaps you know this as well, I just got one slide for you tonight that I want you to look at, and it's basically this one. And basically it's a map of Israel, and Mount Carmel we know is in the, uh, is in the very north of Israel. It's right up there um, just west of the Galilee toward the shore of the Mediterranean Sea. There's a mountain range there by Megiddo, and Mount Carmel is there. But this is not the Carmel that it's speaking of here because there's also one down in the south uh, about halfway um, down through the Dead Sea, um, about in the, in the middle of the, of the country there, uh, just a little bit uh, east of Hebron. And this is the Carmel that is spoken of here. And so Saul erected a, a monument here as a means uh, to show off his victory over the Amalekites. And then verse 13, back in our text, says Samuel, then goes to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Did Saul do the commandment of the Lord? No, he didn't, did he? Because half obedience is disobedience, isn't it? He didn't do the will of God. God gave him very clear direction, and God may give you clear direction, and then the question is, are you going to do it, or are you going to do it another way, or are you going to do it halfway, or are you going to do it 75% of the way, and that, that really hurts me, too, because there have been moments in my life where, you know, God has told me to do something, and I just chomped at the bit, and I didn't follow through with it. And who misses out, really? It's me. I miss out from the blessing of being obedient. Believe me, there are blessings for obedience. There's blessings in being obedient. 
isn't it wonderful to, to feel like, to know that you're doing God's will and, and, and doing it? And, and you know what? You know the cool thing about I, I love about the Lord? Is that he, first he causes us to will and then to do of his good pleasure. He doesn't force us to do something. You know, if you're thinking that, God, I could not, you know, go into the African country and, you know, and, and minister to the Aka Indians. I couldn't do that. But do you think that our brother had the problem doing that? Do you think God gave him a burden for those people and a deep love for those people? It was very easy for, um, for him to go then because God first caused him to will. And then it was very easy then to say, no, all I need you to do is go to them. And he's like, I'm already there, Lord. And I'm so happy to do it. And not everybody has that same thing. It may be something different for you. But God, he, he creates in you a desire to do it. And then you do it. And it's like, it's so easy, really. When he's really called you to do something and you're submitted to him and you're like, and you're really praying about it, Lord, give me a passion for these people. And he does. And then it's so easy then to just go and speak to them. And it's really that simple. Oftentimes, I think people are stepping out when they shouldn't. <laughs> you know, they, they feel guilty because they're not doing anything. And then they step out in the flesh and they find out that God's not with them in it. God will still bless them for their, their, their willingness, but, it, you know, that falls flat on its face and you get kind of discouraged, and then God encourages you, encourages you some more, and then he gives you something to do, and then you go out and do it. And it's a different story then, because now it's his will. Notice in verse 14, but Samuel said, what then, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And this reminds me of sort of like a mother catching a child in the act of doing something. You know, it's like a child, a little boy, like, like me when I was little. I'd hold candy, you know, like uh, cotton candy behind my back, and my mother could smell cotton candy. And here I am standing with my hands behind my back, and she's like, um, I smell cotton candy. Do you have cotton candy? Nope. And I got, you know, pink stuff all over my face, little fuzz, you know, all over my face. Do you have cotton candy? Nope, don't have it. Well, why do I smell cotton candy, and why is it all over your face? Right? Same thing here. Samuel's going, Saul, what is this bleating of the sheep that I hear? I'm trying to sound like Peter O'Toole. What is this bleating of the sheep? It's called busted. Busted. He got busted. And Saul said, verse 15, they, they, notice he's pointing the finger at the people now. It's not about him anymore. They, look at them, Samuel, look at these horrible people. They have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared, the people did it. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. And they did it for such a noble cause too. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. Not my God, but to the Lord your God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. But it's them. They're your problem. It's not the, the blame game. Saul did that in chapter 13 too. Verse 11 and 12, always blaming someone else for his mistakes. They, the people, he's always blaming them, blaming them. And then in verse 21, later on in the same chapter, he's going to say, but the people took of the plunder. The people did it. I didn't do it. It's all of them. Does that sound familiar? Remember Aaron, when he, was, when he made the calf, the golden calf? He blamed the people. And then he says, we took all these earrings off and, you know, and they, they made me do it. And then when we finally took all the earrings and the gold off, we threw it in the fire and I'll pop the calf. Wow, that's a miracle. You mean you just took off all the, the, the big, big bowl of earrings, you just tossed them into the fire and I'll pop the calf. Wow, it's great. But yet the Bible tells us that 
Aaron fashioned it with tools. <laughs> Oops. Didn't tell you that part. Are you that kind of person that's always blaming somebody else, never taking responsibility for your actions, for your decisions? James says that a person like that is a double-minded man. He's two-spirited. One side of him says it's like the little devil and the little angel. You know, you don't want to do that. That's not very nice. Oh, do it. You know you're going to feel it's going to feel good. Please do it. You know, you're, you want to do it. You know you want to do it. It's going to feel great. No, it's not going to be good. You know, you're, you know. And so you're, you're two-spirited. You've got these two different natures happening. You're vacillating. You're unstable in all your ways, James tells us. And then back in verse 16 in our text, it says, Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. So he's hearing all this stuff, all these excuses. And finally, he says, Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul said to him, speak on. And so Samuel said, when you were little, and here's the, here's the rebuke. When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Doesn't the Bible say, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up? When you were little in the sight, in your sight, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Saul, you started off really insecure. Remember when they finally brought him forth, he was hiding amongst the stuff. He was humble. He was in, insecure. But now he's very secure. Now he's doing silly things. He's, doing, he's very self-willed now, but he's had some time under his belt. So verse 18, the Lord sent you on a mission, notice what Samuel says to him, and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until what? Until a few of them are left? No, until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Notice that regardless of whether the people did it or he did it, Saul was responsible because he was the leader. God had called him to do it. And honestly, I believe if Saul would have had a backbone, and again, this is the real trial of leadership, but if Saul would have said, you know what, guys, I know you want to take the fine, cat, the fine cattle, and I know it's a really great idea, but God said to do this, and we must do this. We must not take these cows and the, the finest of the things and bring them back. I'm sure the people would have said, okay, we're not going to. That's what the king says. But he was more concerned about pleasing them than pleasing God. He was a man pleaser. If you're a man pleaser, you can't serve God. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I gone and have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. <laughs> usually someone who is trying to justify that they did the commandments of God are usually those who didn't or don't want to or will not. We somehow feel that we have to convince ourselves enough that God will be convinced as well. Well, he's not going to be convinced. He's not going to be convinced. And the disobedient man, he's always looking for exploiting loopholes. He's always looking at the splitting of hairs concerning details. Oh, but I did it, but just I saved Agag and we saved some of the livestock. I mean, I did everything else, though. God's going, that's not the deal. That's not what I ask. Notice verse 21, but the people took the plunder, the sheep, the oxen. Notice he's blaming them again. But the people did this. It's the people, but the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He sounds so spiritual, doesn't he? 
We took the livestock to sacrifice because God only wants the best, right? And so this is all going to God, and God's going, really? Is that really why you did it? Or did you just want the nice steaks for yourselves? Hmm, I think you wanted the steaks for yourselves. They weren't even thinking about God. Certainly Saul wasn't thinking about God. So Saul here is feigning to be spiritual in his disobedience, and that's even like insult to adding insult to injury. And then saying that they're going to worship with it. Lying to cover up his covetousness and theirs. Verse 22, so Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed, remember, to heed then to then the fat of rams. Obedience is the key. Obedience is the key. In Psalm 51, David says, For you did not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. For you do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. That's all God wanted was obedience. And we find it so much easier to do outward acts of devotion than being true and obedient from the heart. And see, God looks at the heart. That's what he sees. That's why God could say David was a man after my own heart. God saw David's heart. Even though he was a young man, not a, wall, a really tall, handsome guy like, like Saul, a warrior. No, he was a younger man. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you, Saul, from being king. And boy, that must have stung. Can you imagine being stung with that? Then Saul said to Samuel, he finally breaks, and he says, I have sinned. I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people. Here it is. It comes out. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I didn't obey God's voice. I didn't fear God. I feared them. And the see, folks, this is worldly sorrow, not godly sorrow. And there is a difference, right? In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, it says, Paul speaking to them says, I rejoice that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. And that's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, but worldly sorrow is just upset because you got caught. There's a big difference, right? It's somebody coming forward and saying, you know what? I've, I've been doing this thing for a long time. I want to confess it. I want to be out in the open with it. That's, and then turning from it, that's real godly sorrow. But it's crocodile tears and worldly sorrow when Someone's been doing it for a long time, and they finally get caught. And then they're like, oh, but they're really upset because they got caught. They would have continued in it had they not got caught. See the difference? Worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And he feared the people, fearing man. What does the Proverbs twenty nine twenty five says? The fear of man brings a snare. And it did for Saul, didn't it? This kind of character that was built in him brought his ministry brought his kingdom to an end. The Pharisees in Jesus' time, they were like Saul. They were men pleasers. Paul, encouraging the Ephesians, he says, to bondservants, be obedient to those who are masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and in sincerity of the heart as to Christ. And then he says, not with eye service as men pleasers, 
men-pleasers. In Galatians, he would say to them in chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For now do I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And there's a difference. I don't want to be a man-pleaser. Do you want to be a man-pleaser? I don't think any of us here want to be a man-pleaser. We want to be a God-pleaser. Please the Lord. You know that phrase, God bless America. I like it. But I think we ought to turn it around and say, America, how about you bless God? <laughs> Why don't you turn that around? America, bless God. You've been living like a whore. And you've been eating the fat things and acting like you own everything. And yet you don't even realize that God, you are accountable to. That's the state of America. We have been living like a prostitute. Not everybody, of course. There's exceptions. But our government, many people. Notice in verse 25, Now, therefore, please pardon. Now, notice Saul crying out to Samuel, now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Isn't this misplaced devotion? Devotion Shouldn't he be asking that of God? But now Samuel's standing before him. And see, there's another problem. Saul was so enamored with the character of Samuel that he forgot about the one who made Samuel. <laughs> Notice he doesn't say, God, please forgive me for what I've done. You know, he goes, therefore, please pardon my sin. He's speaking to Samuel. Samuel can't pardon him from sin. Only God can do that. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. What a bitter pill for him, right? And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and he tore it. And so Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. He's better than you. That was going to be David. And David was better than Saul. David had a, a heart after God. I long to have a heart like that. I, that's what I want. I want a heart that loves God more than anything else. He's doing it. I, I, I mean, I, I sense it. And do you feel that too? Are you, do you have that confidence in your heart that you're going in that direction rather than the opposite? If not, it's not too late to turn yourself around. Right, And also, the strength of Israel. And he's speaking about God. This is a, a phrase about him. The strength of Israel. That's God. He will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. And I love that. God will not relent, and he will not lie. And then he said, I have sinned. Saul finally says it again. Yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. So now Saul is like, just go back and worship with me. Just go back and worship with me around the people. I want them to see you still like, like everything, like we're buddy-buddy still, right? We're still buddies? We're still good? We're still good? Are we good? Everything good between us? Can you just go back with me? I know I messed up really bad. I know this is going to come to pass, but just so I can save face. I mean, just because I, uh, oh. Saul wants to save face with the people. Because certainly if Samuel turns around and leaves, the questions are going to come up. What happened? What did he say? 
So Samuel turned back after Saul. Notice, in, in, his, in grace, Samuel turns back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord with Saul. Samuel did. First time he said no, and then finally after he tears his robe, he goes, he's like, all right, I'll go back with you. And then Samuel said, bring Agag. Notice Samuel says that. There's, a, there's some unfinished business here. Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously or cheerfully. You can imagine the king now, Amalek, or Agag, I'm sorry. He's like, uh, hey, how's it going? <laughs> you know, this all is over with now, right? I mean, the, he says, you know, the, the bitterness of death has passed, right? I mean, we're good, right? We're good? Everything good? We, you know, you can take whatever I've got, and I'll just go be on my way. Is that all right? That's literally what it means. He, was, he came to him cheerfully, trying to act like, it already been atoned for. All the bad things, it's all done. Now I can kind of be on my way. I don't even need a ride. You know, I'll just, I'll grab my, my naked self and I'll just go that direction and you guys just stay over here. I'll even give you my tunic and all that stuff. I'll just, I'll be going that way and you guys can go that way and we're good, right? We're good, right? No. Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord and Gilgal. You know, it just reminds me of that, that phrase, that command, or uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is what you used to do, Agag, and now your mother's going to be childless as well. So then Samuel went to Ramah. So Samuel goes back home after this. Samuel hacks, he finishes the job that God had wanted him to do, wanted Saul to do to begin with. He didn't do it. Samuel says, I'll do it. And then Saul goes up to his house at Gabeah of Saul. So it's kind of like a real bummer now. <laughs> and can you imagine the people seeing Samuel hack Agag to pieces and realizing at that point that we should have did that. We should have done that. Saul should have done that. I bet all the people at this time, instead of him pointing their fingers at him pointing his fingers at them, they're probably going, "You should have done that." But Samuel does it, and Samuel went no more notice to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted again that he had made Saul king over Israel. And again, God knew. So it's about obedience. Really, that's what this chapter is all about. It's about obedience. God wanted him to be obedient, and I would encourage you, as, as, uh, as Aubrey comes up and leads us in worship, I, I just encourage you to just to ask the Lord, you know, if there's anything in you that's keeping you from being obedient, are you willing to be obedient, or are you still in the driver's seat of your life? Are you still doing things your way? Are you willing to put aside your great desires for whatever it is and say, Lord, if it be your will, if it be your will, and Lord, change my heart. Whatever, you, whatever it is that you want to do, Lord, just make my heart willing. And I think that's a good place to stop and for us to think about that and bring our hearts before the Lord as we, as we worship. And if you could, when you're ready, come on up and, and take the bread and the cup and bring it back to your chair, and then we'll take it together, okay? Okay.